Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there. Before we start the show, I wanted to thank you for sharing your stories in our voicemail box. We are listening and we really appreciate it. We're all pretty weirded out right now, too. Tell us how you're getting through it. Our number is 202-888-2588. Or you can just tweet at me. I'm at Mary's desk. One more thing before we get started. Our guest today, she uses a couple of four-letter words. All right, on to the show. Derek Hass is an emergency medical physician in New York, works the weekend shift. And she can still remember the first time she thought, Maybe I need a mask. Who do you think your first patient with COVID-19 was? I don't know. So this is actually a really interesting question because I um, I had taken care of a patient on February 29th who I was like, this is a very weird presentation of a fever and a cough. And I went through this thing in my mind. She had no travel history. She had no risk factors, right? None of the CDC criteria for who should be. We didn't have a test at that point, but even like who you should flag, she just didn't meet any of those. But she stuck with you. Yeah. I, no, and she coughed on me. Um, it was the first time I thought I should protect myself from patients. Dara is one of those people who knows everyone at work. She's always giving out advice, not afraid to ask for advice herself. One of the other doctors on shift with her, he'd worked in Africa, gotten Ebola while he was there. So she called him in to talk this puzzling case out. And he came into the room after she did and talked to me and he was wearing a mask. And I was like, you're already wearing a mask? Like, he's like, I don't mess around with PPE. This is literally what he said to me. And I was like, really? Every patient? He's like, Dara, every patient. And I was like, okay, Craig, every patient. And then the shift was over, right? But by two weeks from then, so February 29th to March 14th and 15th, the whole world had changed. Dara says there's this way a hospital can feel as it tenses up, braces for an emergency. She felt it on 9-11 after Hurricane Sandy. She felt it again when she returned to the ER two weeks after that patient coughed on her. That weekend felt the way I think a lot of other hospitals are going to feel as this happens. There's a calm before the storm that is really scary because you wind up discharging a bunch of patients who most likely really don't need to be there. So you you discharge patients to basically make room for a surge. Yeah. And, and the system does that, right? You realize that the day it happens, the ER is empty. Hmm. And then it's the next day and the next day that you start seeing the patients come in a little sicker, a little more short of breath, their oxygen level is a little lower. Now we're intubating not just a 90-year-old, but we're intubating a 50-year-old, right? We're intubating two patients at the same time. When did you start to feel sick? So I actually woke up on um, Monday morning and was like, damn, I'm tired, <laughs> you know? Dara's not going into work anymore. She's quarantined at home, positive for COVID-19. 
it's a little suspect how quickly I got infected. It's, it's my husband was like, you really are not good at PPE, are you? And I was like, I guess not. It started with some muscle aches, spiraled into a headache. And my friends were like, you're coughing a lot. And I was like, all right, I'm coughing a lot. And I spoke to a friend of mine who's a doctor. I registered officially as a patient, you know, and he ordered the test for me based on my symptoms and my exposure. And I went through one of the drive through centers and got tested and had the results actually the same day. When you got the results, how'd you feel? <clears throat> Sorry. Um, strangely relieved and then really scared. Why relieved? Because A, I wasn't crazy. I really did have it. B, I had already gone through three days of symptoms and I was still breathing. And then the fear came at, I'm day three of symptoms. Will I still breathe? Today on the show, Dara Cass talks about going from doctor to patient. Her question now is when can she get back to the ER? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Dr. Derek Hass lives at the epicenter of the U.S. coronavirus outbreak, New York City. And until her diagnosis, she was working ER shifts in Columbia University's sprawling hospital system. She says her bosses there did all they could to prevent getting to the place where they are now. I'm, I'm proud to work at Columbia. I am proud of how Columbia has addressed this from the beginning. Um, working in one of the major medical centers in New York City, we always knew we would be overrun with patients when it came to New York. And they have been incredibly honest and consistent with their desire to help and to be leaders in this field. Is there a but here? You can only do what you can do. So they're not testing nearly enough people because they can't. They're not testing nearly enough healthcare workers because they can't. Um, it is a really difficult thing to tell people who probably have the virus. Yeah, you probably have it. I wish I could test you. I wish I could give you closure. It's uncharted territory for us as doctors to watch patients who look like us get really sick without preparation. And like the two analogies of the personal experience that I've ever had um, as a doctor are when I started getting pregnant, you know, when I was deciding to have kids and other women would come in bleeding and pregnant. And I would start really identifying with that fear of not knowing if I was going to lose the pregnancy as well. And then I was speaking to another friend of mine who's gay 
And he talked about when the HIV epidemic was really hitting, what it felt like to be a gay man and a physician watching patients who were otherwise historically young and healthy come in with these mysterious you know, ailments and how scary that was. So with COVID, is it just that you're seeing lots of patients who are sort of young, look like they could be working alongside you in the ER kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, so we're seeing, look, it is still overwhelming the patients that that come in that are sick and affected are going to be over the age of 60. This disease does have a preference or a prevalence amongst older people, but that has nothing to do with it sparing younger people. So for the first time ever in our life, we are intubating patients that look just like us a lot. It's not just that it's one random person who has a lung disease or somebody that has a really extraordinary case of cancer, God forbid, or whatever it is. It is the consistency that every day on every shift, there will be one patient under the age of 50, at least, who will lose the ability to breathe on their own. And that's, that's just, it's, it's just not what we see, not here. So it sounds like what you're doing is you're both talking to other physicians who have found themselves suddenly ill, but then also talking to physicians who are still slogging through it every day, but seeing themselves in their patients and feeling helpless. That's exactly right. And that's where the, the, the kind of cycle of anxiety and fear, I think, for the healthcare workforce is coming in is, you know, we are helpers first and foremost. We rearrange our lives for this. We are ready to take care of patients. Now we have this, these other experiences that we have to fit into that. Well, if I come home to my family, am I exposing them? What happens when I get infected and I get sick? Am I going to get to be one of those patients who's not going to make it? And then amongst our peers, when you're taken out of commission, when you're home recovering, every day you think, is this a day that I'm going to get sicker than I was before? I woke up every morning in like the nine or 10 day course, just breathing and being like, I can breathe today. Because you didn't know if that was going to be the case. Right. Because we have seen patients after five or six days, especially young patients, take a turn for the worse and lose the ability to breathe. Now, it makes it super existential. As long as I can breathe today, I'm going to use my breath for a purpose. Hmm. Right? So how many healthcare workers do you know like you who are now positive? It's, so it's more and more each day. Every day I get multiple texts from friends of mine who find out that they're positive or they're waiting for tests. I will tell you that there are many of my friends who are exposed at work in different health systems who still cannot get tested. In New York City right now, if you are not sick, and I would not ever qualify myself as sick over the last nine days, I was infected, right? Sick is high fever. Sick is worried about pneumonia. Sick is need supplemental oxygen, right? If you're not sick, even as a healthcare worker, you still can't get tested. You have to be sick and a healthcare worker to be tested. Even before Dara started feeling sick, she was planning her life as though infection was inevitable. She sent her kids to stay with family. They were out of the house before she showed any symptoms. One of her kids has an underlying condition. He got a liver transplant as a toddler. Dara didn't know if that put him at higher risk from COVID-19, and she didn't want to find out. So my kids, so I, I, I brought them to my parents' house, or my sister's house, actually, and I came home with my husband, and it, it's like, it's an eerie quiet. You make a decision that feels dramatic, but you do it because you want to protect your family from you. I mean, my husband stayed with me, and I think he probably has it. You think he has it? I do. I think he has it. I think that he 
just started showing symptoms a couple of days ago. And so that's a whole new wave of anxiety for me. But again, most people do fine and I'm going to watch him closely and he's going to take Tylenol and he's going to do the same pulse ox checks that I did. And he's going to, you know, take deep breaths. And as long as he can breathe too, we'll be fine. You know? So you got the kids out of the house. Then once you had that positive test result, did you then like divide up the house and like, okay, you're going to be in this floor and I'm going to be on that floor? <laughs> yeah. So in our house, we divided our house into basically COVID hot zones and COVID cold zones. A lot of our doctor friends had developed these decontamination protocols where we could enter our house, completely strip down, run up to the shower, bag the clothes, put them in the dish, like in the uh, washing machine directly, go into a shower, scrub down everything. I mean, there's a whole you know, there are side threads on washing your hair as ER doctors because people are washing their hair every single day who hadn't been doing it at that level of frequency, you know? Um, but it, there's a level of, of personal, like, pr- procedure change that you do in this way. You wrote something on Twitter. You said that during your quarantine, the nights are the worst. What, what do you think about? I was thinking if I could breathe, you know? Am I still breathing? Is my breathing weird? Am I having chest pain? What's going on here? And then it's, oh my God, the president said today that he's going to consider getting rid of social distancing because he's tired of this and he's bored and he really wants to get the economy working again. What does that mean? We haven't even gotten ahead of what's going on in the world. We're hearing all these messages, you know, from the White House, you know, scientists are being sidelined for, you know, what really amounts to propaganda. It's not getting better. There are no magic medicines. There are no cures. This is going to be hard work for a lot of people, and it's going to take a long time. And if we're the ones going on the front lines, seeing patients, taking care of patients, making sure that everybody is safe, how is it that the person that's supposed to take care of us is telling us it's not that big of a deal? When I spoke with Dara... This one recent news story was still stuck in her head. It was a comment from the Texas lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick. He thought the self-isolation orders and business closures were going too far. And, you know, Tucker, no one reached out to me and said, uh, as a senior citizen, uh, are you willing to take a chance on your survival in exchange for keeping the America that all America loves for your children and grandchildren? And if that's the exchange, I'm all in. Uh, Let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it. Uh, And those of us who are 70 plus, we'll we'll take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. Don't do that. Don't ruin it. Like, it's, you know, it's funny because I I am actually glad that stuff, I mean, I I think I cursed. Yeah. There was two tweets recently that I cursed. One was about women having to give birth alone because that's torture. And the other one was watching this ignorant fool stand on television as the lieutenant governor of a state larger than most countries to speak about something that he does not know anything about. He says, oh, grandparents are going to be fine. Well, I'm watching parents not be fine. If you want to be that ignorant and if you want to be that self-centered, then step out of leadership, go to your ranch, hang out with your cows or whatever you're doing. I don't care. But stop putting people at risk. We're not closing small businesses because we're anti-American. We're saying stay home because we're trying to save America. That disconnect 
is overwhelming in moments when you're literally laying there trying to breathe. Now, thankfully, Dara's feeling better. And she's ready to go back to the ER. You've been quarantined for how long? The last thing I did was go get tested. And that was on Thursday of last week. So now it's, I have not left the house. I have a deck, so I got to go outside and wave to a neighbor. (laughs) But I've been home since then. I'm actually, so I have had no fever at all. And I am definitely feeling better. So I would be cleared to go back to work ASAP. Technically, she's allowed to go back to work if she goes three days without a fever. That rule doesn't seem to be rooted in science. But no one's requiring Dara tests negative before going back to work. There aren't enough tests for that. How do you imagine your first day back going? I mean, I know what it looks like every day. I've been getting you know reports from friends and it will be what it will be. It will be overwhelming and super scary and very sad and a little bit inspiring, I think. What do those texts sound like? Like, can you, would you even read me a couple? Yes. Um, hold on. Sorry, I just finished sign out. Maybe I'm being emotional. I cried three times today. Hmm. I'm mentally exhausted. I didn't eat. I snapped today. This is so hard. And I'm so nervous. We are going to get up by Italy and poor people will be left behind. I said, we are going to end up like Italy. We have no chance. She said, exactly. I'm crying all over again. I said, we just need to hold each other during this time. She said, I agree. I said, it's going to be a rough few months for New York. She's like, New York is already at a rough time. And that was on Saturday. So things have gotten worse since then. I mean, they're going to get worse every day. There was a paper in the New England Journal today about the responsible and moral choices we'll have to make about who to ventilate and who not to ventilate. I saw that paper and it kind of broke my heart because it was saying in the wonkiest, doctoriest way, we're going to have to make hard choices and here's how we're going to make them. I think it recommended like some kind of panel to decide who gets taken off right. of life support. It got into these details like, do not have the person who has been giving the care to the patient be the person who removes the care from the patient. We are going to have to make decisions that none of us are prepared to make for our families, for our patients, and for ourselves. That's part of preparation, is deciding now what the algorithm looks like, who to intubate. Deciding now what to do with nursing home patients who get sick with this, who we know if they're 90 years old with multiple comorbidities and maybe they've had a stroke and maybe they're demented. I'm like, I'm being really serious. These sound like the death panels that were used as propaganda when the ACA was coming out. Yet we're going to have to make those choices. Do we intubate? and ventilate a 90-year-old with dementia or a 40-year-old with three kids. I was talking about that paper. I was talking about this idea of who do we give care to and, and who do we not give care to with some colleagues. One of my colleagues said, well, don't we have these rules already? Like, don't we have some kind of triage wartime rules about who gets the care 
when the going gets tough. Do we? No. We don't. We live in a consumption healthcare system where nobody is supposed to die, where there are no resources unlim- like that are limited except for people that are too poor to get them. We spend a majority of our healthcare dollars on like the last couple of years of somebody's life. Well, those years have just been, you know, the, the timeline has been escalated. And now we have to choose. I mean, these are the things that I'm thinking about at night when I realize I can still breathe. That's why people have to stay home. You know, look, I went into emergency medicine for a lot of reasons. And there are people that are built for these moments, right? The chaos, the anxiety, the save. But most of those days end with a save. This is why it's different. It's different because most of these days will end with people not being saved. Certainly not the majority of people or certainly not all the ones that you wanted to save or even could save. Can I ask what you're going to do for your husband? Because you're saying he woke up feeling unwell. Yeah, he just feels, he says, eh, you know, um, I'm going to do the same thing I did for me. He, I, I gave him a bottle of Tylenol, a pulse ox, which is the thing you put on your finger that gives your heart rate and your, your oxygen level. I bought it on Amazon. And the reason I use that is because it helps make you feel better that you can breathe. Like it's a validating thing, right? And it also shows you when you can't, but it is. Um, so I handed him a bottle of uh, Tylenol, a pulse ox, and an albuterol inhaler. He's not having shortness of breath, but uh, that algorithm and the thermometer, which he already had, um, with a bottle of water and a bed. And I just said, go lay down. (laughs) You're so funny. You're like, deal with it. But you're not. Are you going to get him tested? Uh, I, I don't. He doesn't meet criteria to be tested. Even though he's been living in the same house with you. That's not criteria right now. The criteria is sick and known contact or sick and healthcare worker. I got tested through a window of opportunity that I don't think exists anymore. Hmm. So <laughs> ER doctors are known for being kind of macho. Like there's this there's this term for them, Bafford, badass fucking ER doctor. I kind of, I want that mojo. <laughs> I want to feel like a badass right now. You seem to feel like a badass right now. How do I get that energy? Okay, so I will say um, I have never personally refer- referred to myself as a Bafford. Why? There's this kind of sense of cowboyness to it. You know, it's like there's a sense of bravado there that I don't think a lot of us have to have. But there is a sense of ability to um, compartmentalize anxiety, which I think is really what you're asking about, right? Yeah. What we do in emergency medicine, which I think helps, is we control the things we can control. And we try really hard not to control the things we can't. Sounds like Buddhism. I mean, I guess so, right? Like, I know that when somebody comes into my ER sick and dying, I will do whatever I can to save their life. But if they don't make it, I didn't do that to them, right? There is a will of God. There is a algorithm. There is a train that I'm not always going to get in front of, right? The problem is, like I said, most of the time we get to get in that way. We get to save the person. We get to derail them from dying for the most part, or we don't and we accept that as inevitable. The frequency by which we're not going to be able to derail the train is going to be overwhelming for my people. 
For regular people, it's the sense that everything is falling apart at once. So even the Baffords are feeling a little less like Baffords. If they're not feeling a little less like Baffords, they're lying to you. Derek Haas, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Derek Haas is an emergency medicine physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital and Columbia University Medical Center in New York. She spoke to me from her home, where she's been in quarantine after testing positive for COVID-19. That's the show. We've been listening to your voicemails about how you're dealing with the outbreak, dealing with the lockdowns, dealing with more uncertainty than a lot of us are used to. Hello, I'm Annika. I am in a suburb of Chicago in Illinois. I was going to be a graduating senior from college this semester, but we've all been sent home, so it doesn't really feel as real anymore. Um, None of us are really planning on walking at graduation just because we're pretty sure it's not going to happen, even though the college hasn't canceled yet. So what I've been trying to get together with a couple friends is if you have instruments in your house uh, to arrange pomp and circumstance for those instruments uh, and each play it individually in our own houses and record it and then put it together and make one final version of us playing pop and circumstance as a sort of uh, graduating within your own home. Uh, Right now we have two violins and a trombone, which is not an amazing orchestration, but uh, yeah, I would love to make it work. So that's what I'm distracting myself with these days is learning how to arrange. And I hope all the other seniors out there can do something else to make their graduation feel a little bit special. If you want to join in on Annika's remote orchestra, tweet at me. We can do this, folks. But seriously, these messages are making us all feel more connected during a really solitary time. So call us. The number's 202-888-2588. Or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Daniel Hewitt, Mara Silvers, and Jason DeLeon. Check the feed tomorrow for What Next TBD. That's our tech show. Lizzie O'Leary is going to be talking to New Yorker contributor Robert Baird. He's been covering the quest to do more COVID-19 testing. His reporting on this issue has been excellent. Make sure to listen. Stay well. I'm Mary Harris. I will talk to you on Monday. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.